Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Mark R. Stoll, Associate Professor of History and Director of Environmental Studies at Texas Tech University. His book, Inherit the Holy Mountain, Religion and the Rise of American Environmentalism, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Stoll offers a history of environmentalism emerging from a religious aesthetic and moral vision. He argues that environmentalism began with Calvinist theological commitments regarding the divine's relationship with nature and humanity. The Reformed branch of Christianity held that God spoke through Scripture and the book of nature. Believers express this idea not only in literature, but also through landscape paintings and a tradition of natural science and conservation. Preferring unpeopled landscapes, art was to capture both the truth of God's creation and the sublime and the beautiful. Humanity had a moral responsibility to preserve the land for the common good and future generations. The book is filled with creative and colorful characters, well-known and lesser-known, whose commitment to preserving the earth was undergirded by religious ideals. The children of the Reformed tradition promoted biological holism, nature's unity and diversity, and gave birth to ecology, conservation, and land improvement. The national parks, American cities, and agriculture all bear their imprint. By 1870, the reform tradition faded, and conservation and ecology were taken up by the transcendentalists, progressive Presbyterians, and denominations with an individualistic ethic, such as the Baptists, to shape modern environmentalism. Stoll demonstrates how the children of these traditions challenge the often assumed divide between religious ideas and environmentalism. Here is my conversation with Mark R. Stoll. Now let me introduce you to the author, Mark Stoll. Mark, thank you for coming to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is a rich history of environmentalism. It crosses many divides, and I think we have a lot to talk about. But before we get into the book, Tell us about yourself, your background, how you came to write this book, Inherit the Holy Mountain. Thank you, Lillian. It's, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, talk to you. I teach environmental history and American environmental history and American religious history here at Texas Tech University, Lubbock, Texas, out on the, the South Plains. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I... Uh, Got my doctorate from University of Texas at Austin back in 1993 and had lived in California before that um, for 10 years in the San Francisco Bay Area. <clears throat> I'd always had an interest in in the environment growing up, but uh, it was in California that I really uh, got addicted to the outdoors and backpacking and joined the Sierra Club back in 1981. Uh, when I went to back to graduate school in 1987, um, I was looking for a topic for my first research paper, 
in my very first research class going back to graduate school. And um, I had just recently read a, a biography of John Muir, the famous um, founder of the Sierra Club and nature writer, <clears throat> kind of hero of the environmental movement. Um, John Muir had an interesting background. He was raised what today we would call fundamentalist, extremely strict uh, Christianity of a, a Scottish Calvinist type. And according to the wisdom of the day, uh, you, there was a tension between Christianity and the environment, uh, even an, um, an opposition. Um, the, the sort of poster child for that was James Watt, uh, Reagan's Secretary of the Interior, who was uh, a Pentecostal and was distinctly uh, opposed to the environmental movement. And so he sort of becomes a, a symbol of that. So I was wondering, how does a man go from being just having this really religious background to being this hero of the environmental movement? I <clears> think <throat> the, the thought of the day was that um, you have to reject Christianity in a way. You have to leave it in order to become uh, environmentally friendly. And although he did reject his background, <clears throat> it seemed to me that, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Um, that um, a person does not just um, – you, you just you never leave behind that person you were as a child. Um, it puts a spin on you that you never quite leave behind. We all – all of us who have a religious background, we still have that inner Presbyterian, that inner Catholic, that inner Baptist that uh, will be with us always no matter where we go, uh, converting to Buddhism or becoming an atheist or – staying the same religion or there is something that puts a mark on you. So I was wondering what are the continuities there? And this is really where my research started was thinking about how did his background actually in some ways prepare him to be this environmental figure. My um, first book was a kind of an exploration of that, um, looking at environmentalists and in industrialists and Comparing their backgrounds, interestingly, most of them came from the same sort of background, a very similar Calvinistic kind of background. Uh, you sort of expect it for the industrialists, but um, why was it that so many environmentalists were also coming from the same background? Uh, as I was doing the revisions to that book, came out in 1997, it's called Protestantism, Capitalism, and Nature in America. Uh, as I was doing revisions, I began to realize that you can – see continuities between or definite patterns between the denomination in which you were raised and the kind of environmentalist you might become as an adult. There were distinct relationships. Um, people who were congregationalist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist or uh, Catholic or Jewish would have to think, would tend to think about the relationship between society and nature and the value of nature um, in very similar ways. So there's a kind of a framework that gets impressed on you. Uh, and that's how this book started, was basically looking at the different denominations to try to link together what, you know, how your denomination of upbringing related to the uh, your attitudes uh, towards nature and the environment as an adult. Well, your, your book is, does a lot more than what you just described, even though what you described is, is, is there. That's just where it started. That's exactly. where it started. But you make these incredible links between religion, environmentalism, and art, which was 
unexpected for me. It was new. I had never thought of it that way. And uh, one of the first things you talk about is Calvinism, the Puritans, and how the Puritans viewed nature and their relationship to nature and God's relationship to nature. And I thought that whole section was extremely interesting. So mm-hmm. talk to, what was the view of nature of the Puritans? Well, the Puritans, who would be Congregationalists in America, Congregationalists and Presbyterians in Britain, um, <clears throat> had this sort of <clears throat> had a um, you know Calvinist Calvinism in in common with one another. We today tend to have a kind of a negative attitude towards Calvinism. The first thing that comes to mind is predestination and all that harsh um, fire and brimstone sermons, and it's really very few of us think very positively of Calvinism. But Calvinism was quite rich and was interesting to discover how rich its thought was about nature. Calvinists, because they they do believe in predestination, predestination only makes sense if you look at everybody as utterly depraved and deserving of hell, except for those few people that God in his mercy has chosen to be saved. Um, if you're going to deserve hell, you're going to have to be pretty, pretty bad. So we are all depraved in Calvinism, a tend towards sin. Uh, that negativism is balanced by an really remarkably positive attitude towards nature. Nature is comes straight from the hand of God. Unlike the things that we create, which are for fallen purposes, humans create things for their own purposes. And usually sin is involved in there somewhere. Nature comes straight from the hand of God and must be, therefore, good and pure and reflect God's. Uh, Calvin described nature as the theater of God's glory. You go out there, he can talk about nature in ways that make you think he's almost Emerson or, or John Muir or something. Um, he just, nature is where we draw, where God draws closest to us. We're closest to the spirit of God when we walk out into nature. And he, in, way, in a way, says Calvin, can, in a way, in a sense, communicates himself to us in nature. Yeah, so there's, so there's, a, there's a two things going on there. There's a, a sort of an, a, a, a stance that looks at humanity as depraved and evil, and but nature, in a way, is virtuous, the exactly. opposite of, of man. And I, you find um, all sorts of... Uh, comments by the Puritans uh, that they like to go and meditate in nature and you know it does, it's a place for them to get away from people and to to really think of things of God and the Puritan ministers from the earliest days are recommending Puritans um, get get away from other people get out find a place by yourself out in a beautiful spot um, to pray every day or to do your Bible reading or whatever. Well, it's interesting so it's a, that in, that and that uh, that view that humanity is a negative view of humanity and a positive view of nature is something. It kind of runs in some of the arguments that you hear much later, where people who are who are against the envi- environmental movement are going to say envi- the environmentalists are against people. Mm-hmm. They love ma- nature so much that they don't want to think about what's good for people. They'll put. Sure. A tree like, before a human like, being. Exactly, the tree huggers. Uh, yes. don't Right. Um, like many stereotypes, there's a grain of truth in these, in these things. There is um, an expectation amongst the Calvinists that we're going to misbehave. Um, 
that when we get turned loose in nature, bad things are going to happen. It's going to be exploited for human greed and, and avarice to make people richer, and um, God's beauty in nature is going to be um, destroyed. Um, and it's not really unfair to look at it that way. You can see many examples of exactly that happening. So the one thing that you talk about is they refer to uh, the book of nature. There was the scriptures, and then there was the book of nature. Mm-hmm. Did they did they put it on the same plane as is the revelation that was in scripture? Well, in many ways they are because they both the Bible and nature come from the hand of God, and therefore they must agree with one another. That's the logic behind it. It's not, of course, invented by the Calvinists because it's in a very very old. Christian idea goes back to the fourth century at least that um, that God would not have locked up all knowledge of Him and His attributes in a book that's in languages almost no one can read. You know, back uh, traditionally for hundreds of years, very few people could read, uh, and they certainly couldn't read Hebrew and and uh, Greek. So it. If you just said that the Bible had um, all the truth in it, it would only be available to a tiny few. So the argument, and this is in St. Paul, actually, the argument that um, that you can tell there is a God, and you can tell that God is is, uh, is good and wise, you can tell by looking at nature. But it doesn't mean that the Bible is, is just a duplicate, um, that knowledge of salvation is only in the Bible. There is, there are things that are in the Bible that are not in nature. So they sort of save themselves with that catch there. You take, you take, uh, so you take this philosophy of the Calvinists regarding nature and how it's actually an aid in spiritual life because Mm -hmm. you go to pray and you get, you feel connected to God and um, you get away from people who are depraved. (laughs) (laughs) Then you go into, uh, the, the Hudson River School of Art. You talk about the first person you talk about is Thomas Cole, and then you talk about Frederick Church and about the unpeopled landscapes that they mm-hmm. produced and why landscape painting was sort of, in a way, unique uh, in America, the way the landscapes were painted. Talk about that. I thought that was very interesting. Um. Well, you mentioned that you were surprised, you know, to go back a little bit, you mentioned that uh, you're surprised to have art in there. The reason I was thinking about using art was that um, it would be a way of getting at, getting inside the mind of the painter. So the painter coming from a specific religious tradition will be trying to portray nature in a certain way. And it's, uh, so it was kind of fun to interpret these paintings uh, to look at them and to see what's being put in them, what's being left out. Um, for example, the Calvinists tend to make people very small or like to leave them out altogether because presence of people detracts from the the beauty of God's landscape. So this is where my interest in the paintings begins. And so there's a lot of paintings in the book uh, as we go through the different uh, denominations and time periods. And this, this was interesting in contrast to the Calvinist uh, attitude towards art in general. They were opposed to images, and they cleared out all their churches of any images that, you know, that they would consider that's part of the Catholic sort of tradition. Right. And so you talk about a reformed aesthetic. 
What is, what is tell, talk a little bit about that because all of a sudden there you've got uh, landscape paintings becoming pretty much acceptable and encouraged. Well, the Calvinists had this problem that um, the imagery uh, used religiously was was idolatry. That you were distracted by the images. You would you would be so admiring of the skill of the artist or the sculptor that you would be thinking of the created you know creature people uh, as opposed to be thinking of the creator. So it was making if you heard beautiful the same thing about uh, music if you heard beautiful music you'd be thinking oh what a wonderful composer or how beautifully this is being played rather than your mind going to uh, uh, to god so they were ex- uh, extremely strict about images in the church and wherever calvinism went they just completely whitewashed the walls and took out all the statues um and smashed them or got rid of them so that you could see incredible destruction in areas that were Calvinist of the old medieval churches. Um, so that meant what, how could you use art? Um, for Calvin, everything must be, everything you do must in some sense be for the greater glory of God. So how could art be used uh, for God? Um, for Calvin, there were two different ways that uh, art was probably most acceptable one was um, to portray people who are, despite uh, predestination and depravity, we are still, you know, the crown of creation. We are created in God's image. But it was also a reminder, as we looked at the painting of ourselves, that we're getting older, and it, it was a reminder of our mortality, and, the, you know, it's uh, put into mind higher things. So they're right, the, the portraiture was fine. And the other thing was the painting the the, uh, the works of God in nature. Um, the Calvinists were also fine with uh, didactic sort of images. So you'll begin to find illustrated um, religious works and eventually religious uh, Bibles. Um, so illustrations uh, that are uplifting and going to improve you in some sense or put your mind into a holier spot is better. Art for art's sake, they couldn't understand. That's just to glorify man. It had no higher purpose. Now, this uh, reform aesthetic that you talk about in in the landscape paintings that came through the was you had to capture the truthfulness exactly of right. nature in the sublime, so that the painting would lift your spirits and point you to the truth that was in nature and the sublime that could not be captured. Really, it was a pointer to something else. It wasn't exactly. supposed to draw attention to itself, the painting. Exactly. Um, what was the first point you made? It was, no, that the truthfulness and the sublime the truth, is being yes, the two right. parts of the uh, reform aesthetic. The Puritans were, um, and Calvinists are obsessed with um, uh, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy was, was a lie. Um, and this, this is why Puritans hated the theater so much, is because everybody up there was lying. Uh, it really distressed them when a, uh, a, uh, an actor might actually begin to cry as part of the role. Uh, there's a line in Shakespeare, you know, um, they, there's the play in the play, I think it's in Hamlet, um, where the actor begins to say his lines and begins to, to weep, and then 
uh, Hamlet Marvels. Um, what is he? What is Hecuba? Him or he to Hecuba? That you? I forget exactly the line, but um, he's a, he marvels that he should be able to to emote emote like that, and it really disturbed the Calvinists because if you could fake people out on stage, you could certainly do it in real life. You could certainly do it, um, make people think that you were a holy person when in reality you were not. Um, pretend to be a holy person. So they, lying was really, really bothered them and they really wanted the truth of something. So this is another reason why Calvinist paintings, um, we see it in the Dutch paintings, we see it in the English landscape tradition, and then in the, the Hudson River School, like Thomas Cole, an obsession with detail and getting details right. And now the painting itself might be a pure composition. This is okay. Um, but the tree must be an actual tree. You know, the form of the leaf must reflect an actual leaf in nature. Uh, the, the rocks, the form of the rocks should be geologically correct. Uh, and as time went on, as it's in science advanced in the 19th century, the paintings became more and more and more detailed until you get Frederick church and his paintings that were so detailed, people would look at them with, with um, opera glasses to see all the incredible detail he put in them. Now, the, the Calvinist view of nature didn't just affect art, but it also affected, uh, you talked about the influence that they had on scientific study of nature. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, what, were, what came out of that, what, what was the point of the scientific study of nature? Science for, uh, really traditionally, science, uh, amongst all Christians, science was a religious pursuit because you're studying the works of God. But as the Puritans became more obsessed with that aspect, they became, and of course you are closer to God when you're out in nature, they became more and more interested in natural science. And so... um, it's kind of an explosion of natural science in, in Britain and America in these sort of Protestant areas in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. That's a reflection of that. So there's a connection between religious principles and investigating nature. There's also, uh, they're looking for the attributes of God in nature. And one of the attributes of ways to see God is to look at the incredible interconnectedness of nature, which, of course, if you as everybody was until Darwin, everybody was a creationist. It had to have been put there by God, and this plant was meant for that animal to eat and so on, and everything in this incredible interconnectedness. Um, unity and diversity is the way they would put it in the early 19th century. Um, and so this actually is proto-ecology, the study of how things all link together. Uh, it will lead to Darwin. It leads to ecology um, later in the 19th century. So it's uh, it's kind of the basis for uh, for ecological thinking. They were also they were also interested. You point out in stewardship, uh, a human humanity being a steward of the, of the land and mm-hmm. improving the land and taking care of it. So that this would drive them to uh, science to figure out how to best uh, steward the land. Exactly, um, because we are. Selfish creatures, um, sinful and so on. We are not supposed to live for ourselves. If we're going to be true Christians, we should live a for the glory of God and b to benefit the society. This is we're not supposed to live for ourselves. We should be useful to society. 
So everything that is about us, everything we have, um, from our talents and skills to our possessions, uh, our land, we're supposed to use for the benefit of, of other people. And this is the basis for the modern idea of stewardship. As Calvin put it, that if you have a piece of land, let you so treat it that you hand it on in as good or even better condition than you got it. So there was a, there was a sense that they had a sense of the common good, taking exactly. care of nature for the common good, and also they had a sense of future generations, of leaving something even better than what they had been given for, for the future. Exactly. This is really visible in Puritan communities and uh, those classic New England town that the Puritans uh, founded, that um, they had a strong communal ethic in this, the town. Um, basically, the town was had more valuable than the individuals in it, and you were supposed to improve the town. And the town, of course, wants to leave resources and landscape and, and so on in make it available to future generations. Part of this is um, a uh, kind of a policy against to prevent poverty. Um, the Calvinists believed that poverty was resulted from sin when people greedily, you know, got everything and left other people with nothing. Uh, if you were poor, you were unable to use your talents for the greater good or for the glory of God. You're so busy trying to keep body and soul together or to feed your family uh, that you can't use your talents. So they believe that um, a true godly society would not have poverty. So when they set up the New England towns, they gave land to all all town members. Everybody had enough land and they had enough of all different kinds of land to have a true sustainable agriculture. The Puritan town was the first town First sustainable, just society in America, perhaps the only one we really have been able to uh, to create here as a society rather than just a small community or some sort of commune or something, an entire society based on on that. And so if you used up your 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 woods or your forests, if you used up uh, the land, future generations would be thrown into poverty. Uh, and it was your godly duty to make sure that didn't happen. Now, the New England town, you talk about that being a model for later thought about how to construct cities. And I think also the relationship between the city and the town, the city and the land, mm-hmm. the urban environment versus the, the land. Uh, do you, how do you see that unfolding? It was really remarkable to me. I mean, uh, as I mentioned before, I started this project just trying to see what, how your religious background shaped your attitudes towards nature and the environment. But as I was trying to structure the book, trying to figure out how can I tell this story, it's not just a series, uh, you know, uh, a, a series of chapters about Okay, we're going to talk about Presbyterians in the next chapter. Okay, now the Methodists and, you know, um, as, as a kind of a... Uh, encyclopedia. Encyclopedia of everybody, which would be dreadfully dull. Um, how can I arrange this into some sort of story? And as I, I began to put them into chronological order and then realized that the conservation and environmental movement is dominated in succession by different people from different denominations, which was really remarkable and says a whole lot about the sources and the values 
of the environmental movement at these crucial moments. And in the 19th century, it turns out that just about everybody involved with conservation, forestry, and parks uh, all came out of a small town in western New England and a congregational church. So that these these values, um, at first pretty explicitly, are related to the New England town. Some of the early ones, um, like uh, George Perkins Marsh, were anim- animated, in fact, by the desire to save the New England town. Uh, by the 19th century, the railroad is starting to come into these communities, uh, bringing the market economy, um, undercutting the sustainable agriculture that they've been maintained for 200 years, uh, bringing in cheap Western grains that they couldn't compete with. And so it forced them to abandon grains um, and to start growing or raising uh, dairy cattle or whatever it might be for the market. And it, the New England town really begins to deteriorate. And so the, the first conservationists are trying to figure out how to save the New England town, partly because they like the New England town, and partly because they believe the New England town was the most moral, orderly system in the country and that it should be a model for the new states that were coming in to the West. And so it's not only saving New England, but also saving America. Well, the railroad would have definitely made a, a difference in terms of local economy. It destroyed a local economy. Exactly. Uh, and we're dealing with that today. It's really kind of the first um, hint of globalization. We, we have this exact same problem today. If you try to create a sustainable local economy, um, how can you compete when, you know, cheap apples from New Zealand or, you know, or cheap lettuce from Mexico or something comes in and is, is, um, makes it, it makes it very, very difficult to, uh, to, to try to come up with a sustainable system. Well, you talk about the development of the national park system, but one thing that caught my eye that I didn't expect when you talked about Frederick Olmsted and the New York Central Park, the development of the design, what he was trying to, Olmsted was trying to do in that, in designing the park which mm-hmm. I'd never, I, I didn't expect that I was going to find that in your book, but talk a little bit about city parks and national parks. One of the things that these New England towns had, again, it's pretty pretty much unique in America, was that they had common lands for everybody's use. Uh, some of the land in the center of town was reserved for the, uh, the meeting house, um, but... And they, and they kept some of the common lands for use of future generations uh, as they knew the population would expand. But by the early 19th century, these commons were beginning to lose their their economic purpose. Many of them had been, you know, grazed cattle on them or, or whatever it may have been. And they began to turn them into uh, more recreational areas, plant trees on them and turn them into what were essentially parks. We see this already uh, with the Boston Commons, it's being turned from a, a commons where that was used economically for poor people and so on into a region for everybody to kind of come, a little area for everybody to come and enjoy nature. So there is this tradition, again, that comes out of New England towns, and we find people like Olmsted and others, uh, the proponents of the park, who tend to all come out of New England, are again saying, you know what, we really need in New York is a park 
a place for people to um, come to, you know, it's the works of nature. It makes the works of nature available to even poor people who can't get out to, like the rich people can, to go vacation in the White Mountains or up in the Adirondacks or um, up the Hudson River. Um, and it sort of had a moral effect on society. It had a moral purpose, had a democratic purpose. It was there for everyone, of all um, rich and poor. Uh, it was a place where rich and poor could be together in a non-class situation. Um, so it's very much uh, coming out of this kind of New England mentality. And then, of course, the parks catch on and they uh, begin to – every town wants to have one. And now Ulster was very uh, deliberate in how he designed New York Central Park. Exactly. Everything about it was thought out, that it was, it was supposed to be reflective. It was, not an, it was not an inspiring landscape at all when uh, he got it. Um, but um, he had this very almost Edenic kind of image in his mind, uh, very similar to the way that Eden had been painted by Hudson River School and by um, English painters. Uh, but a place to kind of get away from the city, where the city would be kind of walled off by trees, and you get away from the hustle and bustle and noise and, of the city, and it, it becomes quiet and restful and peaceful. Many people who go to Central Park, uh, there's a portion, a portion of the park called the Ramble. Have you been to? Yes, Central I have. Park? Have I've you been to, to the I've, I've been to Central Park. It's wonderful. It is wonderful, and it's just so different from the city around it. But the one part is called the Ramble that's very, very rustic with waterfalls and trails that go up uh, and around the rocks. And they even have these rustic kind of gazebos up there made out of um, uh, uh, parts of trees that, you know, have not been uh, finished. Um, But it's uh, it's all built. It's all been designed because there was really nothing there. So even the most natural parts of the park. Um, are designed to look natural. But, of course, it's wonderful to visit them and wonderful to climb around, and it really is very relaxing and pleasant to be among the greenery of, uh, in the midst of New York. Now, the um, there was a decline of, of congregationalism. New England declined, congregational declined, and then you've got the transcendentalist and Emerson coming into, into, this, into this narrative. What did the Emerson and the transcendentalist contribute to the environmental movement or at the time, what was the thinking? And the Emerson actually was a very interesting because all of the books you read about the history of the environmental movement focus so much on Emerson and Thoreau, Emerson and Thoreau. So when I went to write my New Englander chapter, I thought, oh, this is going to be really easy. Everybody's going to be talking about Emerson and Thoreau. Nobody was talking about Emerson and Thoreau. I just was astonished. Uh, Emerson and Thoreau had nothing to do with it, which led me to this realization that the New England town was behind, was the inspiration for all of this. But um, Emerson does, uh, he, he's, he and Thoreau, but mainly Emerson in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, really sort of took this Calvinist ethic about nature and put it into a non-theological framework and got rid of all of the of the communal parts of Puritanism and got rid of all of the uh, uh, the 
predestination and the depravity. Uh, you know, it's all personal possibility and remaking yourself and, and achieving your uh, what's in you and, and all of that sort of thing. But, it, of course, it's all, also got a lot of um, getting close to the spirit of God, the creator out in nature. Um, and it sort of divorces it from a theological setting, divorces it from a church. Most of Emerson's devout followers, or even though churchgoers loved Emerson too, there's you know a lot of our famous uh, people who loved Emerson most never never went into the inside of a church. For them, nature was the church. So I, Emerson, in a way, is taking this Calvinism for a post-Calvinist generation. Um, what I also realized was that Emerson's popularity rises and rises and peaks right around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and it's, he's got his most devoted followers um, at that time period. Um, and so he's really influential before the rise of the American, you know, what we think of as environmentalism um, and after the rise of, of conservation. People, I focus on a lot of artists in that chapter, on the Emerson chapter, uh, but also Frank Lloyd Wright, who was devoutly Emersonian, but uh, Ansel Adams, who was always um, trying to express this, this uh, the spiritual value of wilderness in all of his photography. Uh, we all love those photographs. He's immensely popular. Um, and I think for most of us, it's just a, a beautiful picture of Yosemite or whatever it may be. Um, not really realizing that he at all times had, at least in part, this kind of spiritual purpose in trying to transmit these ideas to us. It's interesting, too, to think about, you know, the incredible detail in those photographs that um, links pretty obviously back to the obsession with truth, uh, the truth in the landscape, back to the painters of the 19th century. But a lot of his friends who were painters, um, uh, um, um, John Marin and uh, uh, George O'Keefe and um, um, I'm blanking on his name. Um, That's all right. Yeah, uh, I should have had a book right next to me. Anyway, these uh, the modernist painters, America's first modernist generation of painters, even though they're painting abstract of nature. To them, they are really getting at the truth of nature. But the true, the truth of nature is not necessarily in its details, but rather can be expressed in an abstract way. Now, Ansel uh, Adams that you talk about, his photography Hartley, was all. Hartley was the name I was trying to think. Okay, of. well, Hartley, was Adams cool. was uh, his photographies were photographs were empty of people. Exactly. Again, that still continues. And same way with George O'Keefe and John Marin and Marsden Hartley, uh, works of man and man himself uh, tend to be gone. And there's another thing that I see here, too, is you see this uh, splitting off from the Congregationalist. You've got this Emersonian sort of strand of environmentalism, which tries mm -hmm. to complete it, it. You could say it's always a secularized version of the religious environmentalism. Mm -hmm. And then you've got another strand going uh, with the Presbyterians that took off where the Congregationalists left off. And you talk about John Muir there as a Presbyterian and some other people. Talk about 
what the Presbyterian, the, there were progress, this is in the progressive era at this point. Exactly. So, it, um, this is, this is also very fascinating. Um, was to find, um, as the Congregationalists begin to disappear in the late 19th century, and I think the reason for that is because the, despite their efforts in New England Village, the New England town continues to decline, um, and fewer of them are actually coming out of these New England towns, um, and fewer of them have this congregational background. So congregationalism is changing, New England is changing, and for some reason you suddenly start stop seeing congregationalists everywhere. But who steps up into their, to take their place with these Presbyterians beginning in the 1880s um, and then just completely dominating uh, national conservation from the 1880s all the way up to 1920. And it's also the, the nation's moving west at this time. Mm-hmm. The westward movement is also going to have influence on the environmental movement. Exactly. Um John Muir moving west from uh, uh, from Wisconsin. Uh, is that what you're thinking of? Or? Yes, I'm just thinking about them going westward. And as they go westward, it seems like there's more uh, congregationalism is sort of declining. Presbyterians are picking it up because they're moving west with the population. A lot of congregationalists, when they left New England, the congregational churches were so tied to the community, uh, they would find themselves in places where there was no congregational church, and they would end up in a Presbyterian church because Presbyterians were also Calvinist, and they also had this Puritan background. But they had a very different ethic. They're not so local like the congregationalists were. Um, And they have this strong preaching tradition of preaching righteousness to the nation, going all the way back to John Knox, who founded Scottish Presbyterianism. It's a much more of an ethnic church overall. A lot of Scots would think of Scots as Presbyterians, and it had a very strong Scottish character. Scotland never really had a very strong communal ethic. It's a uh, kind of a clan-based society, more rural, and this uh, this, uh, attempt that the Puritans in America had to kind of create the the just, sustainable community didn't really take effect in Scotland. But they certainly – very Calvinist um, and very much concerned about the destruction of greed and avarice, especially on God's works. They're really, really strong on natural theology. Uh, the writing of books about finding God in nature, writing both popular books for that was popular in America um, and uh, more theological books. So they have this different ethic um, and beginning with um, uh, we have a series of Presbyterian presidents. There's only two or three Presbyterian presidents who, presidents who I'm talking about who were raised Presbyterian before um, uh, Cleveland, Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison. And since the last one was uh, Woodrow Wilson, we have had no presidents raised Presbyterian. So we have um, Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison and um, – Theodore Roosevelt, and then Woodrow Wilson, who also had a series of Presbyterian secretaries of the interior, secretaries of agriculture, uh, just absolutely never in American history have Presbyterians had so much effect. And they really were the ones who created conservation and the parks movement 
as a national movement. They're the ones who created uh, the the national forest. They're the ones who created the national park system. Uh, it's all, all comes from this national era of Presbyterians. And Presbyterians will go on to dominate the rise of the environmental movement. Um, Rachel Carson, the famous author of um, Silent Spring, her grandfather and her uncle were Presbyterian ministers. Um, Edward Abbey, the famous uh, author and advocate of wilderness, his, his mother was the organist in a Presbyterian church in western Pennsylvania. Um, David Brower, the head of the Sierra Club in the 1960s, who transformed the Sierra Club from a little hiking club to a national environmental organization. Uh, he was a raised Presbyterian. Um, but just was, the list goes on and on and on. I was, it's absolutely amazing. I just kept finding, everybody I would look at, I would say to myself, okay, let's look at this person and go back and trace their origins. And another person had come out of the Presbyterian church. But there's a little, there's a little shift there that you note in your book, uh, particularly when you talk about Rachel Carson and Alice Hamilton. You mm-hmm. talk about how the shift went from nature, preserving nature for itself, because it was displaying the glory of God and all those wonderful things, to mm-hmm. we've got to preserve nature because it's affecting humanity. We are poisoning ourselves. We are uh, So there's a slight shift from sort of earth-centered to human welfare-centered that the women take up. That was very interesting, too. I was because in each of these, and one of the things about environmental history, because it's so outdoorsy, um, how do you bring women into the story? Uh, it's kind of a problem with the entire environmental history field, bringing women in. You can do it sort of self-consciously. Uh, I tried to do it more as naturally as possible, bring them in. And I was wondering, where are the Presbyterian women? And all of a sudden, four very influential women come along, all from the East. They're not from the Grand West. We associate John Muir and Edward Abbey and David Brower and all these guys with the, the, the big open spaces of the West. It's rather their East Coast small town kind of backgrounds. Um, one of them, as you mentioned, is uh, Rachel Carson. And another is Alice Hamilton, who is uh, from Indiana, who uh, would be the one to really found um, industrial medicine. The When we think of... Um, environmental contamination and our places where we work and where we live. This was Alice Hamilton's uh, concern. She uh, and she really pioneers that. She becomes the first um, uh, professor of industrial medicine and at the first in the first chair at uh, Harvard. And she, in order to do that, uh, to give her a job, they she was the first woman in the Harvard Medical School faculty. Uh, now they looked for a man who would fill that position but couldn't find one as qualified as Alice Hamilton. And so uh, that's where she uh, uh, made her mark. We also have Jane Jacobs, who we usually think of um, in, in terms of urban areas. Uh, she has a famous book came out around the time that Silent Spring came out in the early 60s uh, about the death and life of American cities, how to make a city livable. And basically, you want to keep those freeways from, you know, um, plowing through the middle of your town and various ways to make a city walkable. Part of what we think of as the environmental movement today to make a, keep a city alive and keep those cars out. James Jacobs was raised Presbyterian. And I also talk about uh, Annie Dillard, who was raised in Western Pennsylvania, 
um, and kind of comes back to the old um, tradition of natural theology in how can we today in this modern world think about the presence of God in nature. Now these, all these women are concerned with uh, human welfare and exactly. the environment and how it's going to affect how we live and what the quality of our life. And then there's this other things coming in there too. And then you, you start talking a little bit about the Baptist and about the individualism. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how from an individualistic sort of Baptist ethic, what the viewpoint of the environment is from that viewpoint. And it's, it has like a double-edged sword, it mm-hmm. seems. Uh, on one hand, uh, the environment is, you know, under man's do- domin- domination to do as man wants. But on the other hand, there's this wanting to get away from government and society and live your own life. And you can only do that if you can learn how to be sustain yourself just from the land. Exactly right. Exactly. Well, very well put. There's something in the, um, the Baptists are the the uh, dissenters in New England society that they don't believe in this communal ethic that um, God is, works differently in, the, in their theology. God, we're they were supposed to proselytize, to evangelize to all of society, and as soon as every person accepted Jesus in their heart. Then we'd all behave like Christians, and all of our social problems and our environmental problems would magically go away. So the the, the focus of um, baptism, the Baptist Church, uh, and which I think has had been really, really influential in American history, the sort of Baptist personal ethic that let's all just individually start doing the right thing, and then let's all recycle. Let's all buy electric cars or whatever. Then somehow we'll, you know, we don't need the government. It just rely on individual action. And in all those Baptists uh, that I talk about in that chapter, that seems to be a theme running through there, there's a kind of mistrust of government solutions and a, a, a trust that if we could just get everybody to think about nature in the right way then, and the environment, then uh, our, our problems will be solved. And one of the people that you talk about, is, which I thought was very interesting, was Scott Nearing in his book, Living the Good Life, mm-hmm. and how that became sort of a Bible in a certain era, era of American environmentalism. Talk about Scott Nearing. He was, was he Baptist, if I recall? He was definitely Baptist, yes, um, and was thinking of, becoming, of going into the ministry. Um, at one point, but uh, he was at a Philadelphia Baptist church. Uh, is this was during the uh, Progressive Era, and the uh, the mayor was going to go in there and and clean up the corruption in Philadelphia. And then the next thing you know, or the and the, and the Baptist minister was on board. And the next thing you know, the Baptist minister was saying, uh, "Well, no, let's better. We better not do that." And he realized that he'd been influenced by corruption. So he he leaves the Baptist church and he decides not to become a minister. Um, but his, uh, his basic idea is, yes, let's, um, he goes off to Vermont and Maine and um, builds his own little home and tries to be uh, completely self-sufficient. This is the 1930s when he does that, when it looks like American capitalist society has collapsed 
And perhaps the best thing we can do is just, you know, go back to the land and tend our own gardens. Uh, and then they published this book, Living the Good Life. It was in 1954, I think, in the 1950s. I don't have the date. Yeah, it's around that time. Um, I think it's the centennial, very close to the 100 years since um, Walden was published. And so they look back to Walden as kind of their, you know, with the same idea that, that, that Thoreau had. And Thoreau was very much of this mentality of um, thinking about your life and thinking, you know, not getting caught up in um, the, the courts of the capitalist world or thinking about money and sort of living for these higher things. But again, Thoreau was, was very individualistic. It's, it's hard to find any community in, in Walden or any of his books. And this is what was so ironic, because you talk about Thoreau being such a hero for the environmental movement at a certain point in the 60s, 70s. And, uh, still and still today, and if you really look at Thoreau, uh, he was very individualistic. It was it was very much about him. <laughs> Self-actualization. Be, it, exactly right. Which appeals to us in these, you know, in the modern era. This is, seems to be since the sixties. It's how we. That's. Uh, I think that's why he's become so popular. And then you go on. You you do mention Wendell Berry, who is so hugely uh, popular, and people just love Wendell Berry because he's such a great uh, writer. But you're you talk about his ethic also coming out of that sort of individualist, sort of going out and you know living off the land. Uh, which is not really necessarily too good for women, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, that, that brings up a great point. I had the hardest time finding Baptist women who said anything about nature. Uh, there's a couple in that chapter, but uh, I, in a way, kind of bend over backwards to find some. Well, I have it's a question. A that's thing. You're right. I have a, real, I have a, a big of a, uh, overall question. It seemed like through all the, uh, the book, all these people who are talking about nature in, in various and sundry ways all have a very sort of idyllic, um, nature is beautiful and sublime and nurturing, and and it was always about all the good things. But there seems to be very little recognition about the wildness of nature in terms of nature is violent, it can be ruthless, it's dangerous, it's unpredictable, and it doesn't care <laughs> about you. I mean, if you are on a mountain and it starts raining or there's a storm and things are happening, it's not going to stop for you. Exactly right. But some people like John Muir gloried in that. That was part of God's plan, too. That was how God made the mountains was with these snowstorms and so on. And, and there's, a lot, are, of, yeah, there's a, a lot of devastation that happens with nature on its own. Yes. Right. You know, floods and, you know, blizzards and it's not always idyllic and wonderful and nurturing and embracing you and calling you. Right. Was, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's, um, was, there, was there any recognition of this in any of this literature or paintings or things that you looked at that, that there was a sense of, hey, you know what? There is this other side to nature. There's this wildness to it. Well, except that the, as the wildness represented an aspect of the divine uh-huh. uh, that I don't know that I can trying to remember aside from your people dealing with it explicitly. Uh, you do have the famous passage in Thoreau when he climbs Mount Katahdin uh, and realizes this is not made for man. We do not belong up here. This is wild 
na- nature that's just heartless and pitiless. Let me go back to Concord, uh, which is this beautiful little town. Uh, and a lot of it, people who try to live off the land end up starving to death. Right. It's not easy to do if you don't know what you're doing. Exactly. Right? So it's uh, it does. It's not always benevolent. And no, it's like the Krakauer book about the guy who died in Alaska. Yes. Uh, right. Yeah. That kind of, so. Yeah. That's just interesting. That seems to be sort of missing from all the the the, the story. Not that you overlooked it, but I'm just saying that that it seems to be mm-hmm. there a blind spot there about considering all the aspects of nature. If we're mm-hmm. really going to come to terms with it and really live with it in a positive way, we've got to understand the mm-hmm. negative aspects too. So where is where is the environmental movement today? It looked like from what you're saying, uh, it's that bureaucratic organizations have taken over the environmental movement and that there really isn't a grassroots movement any longer. I, that, I, I wouldn't go so far to say that. Um, I think there's a lot of grassroots activity. Uh, I do point out the fact that the pres- there's no major Presbyterian environmentalist, not a single one, whose name who was born after 1945. So the, this is the last generation with that kind of, I guess, ex- you know, the Presbyterian Church is is, um, is is evolving just like everything does, and it's losing that Calvinist edge. Um, it's becoming. I mean, when you think of Presbyterians today, you think of the nicest people. They're just so you know, very middle class, and they really are just nice liberal folks by and large. But a hundred years ago, they were not. They were doer and severe and um, censorious, um, and that's made made leaders out of this sort of mix is what raises people like Theodore Roosevelt and, and John Muir. But so what does it mean then that the, this was the question I asked, that the Presbyterians disappear? Uh, one thing it does is the, it makes room for other kinds of leaders. And I point out there's three groups that really are most prominent in environmentalism since the 70s. Um, the Catholics um, are very prominent in a couple areas, especially environmental justice and um also, in uh, it comes this more cosmological um, attitude towards uh, this, the history of the universe as sort of the history of creation of God's creation kind of attitude. That if we think of creation as this the, the product of this long story of God, that we'll think we'll take better care of it. Um, Catholics also have, tend to have a many of them a kind of a, a sacramental attitude towards nature, which is different from the Protestant attitude. Uh, that it's nature is a sacrament and a way to come to God, a um, way for grace to reach us. Then we also have um, African-American Baptists, Black Baptists, who are very prominent in the organization of the environmental justice movement uh, in Warren County, North Carolina, in the early 80s. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, the rise of the... Uh, eco-justice movement amongst, in African-American communities very frequently involves um, a, a Baptist church or um, meetings in the Baptist church or uh, something like that. And then the third group would be Jews who've been prominent in a variety of different ways, but I think the, the field that would be easiest to uh, 
to bring up and to be most familiar to most people would be um, in the um, natural foods movement, Michael Pollan, for example. Well, one thing that was uh, you just brought up African-Americans that, that come very late into the story, and I was thinking about why is that, and basically maybe because African-Americans have a different relationship to the land. The land is labor, it, <laughs> intensive mm-hmm. labor, and a lot of this environmental uh, movement, the early 19th century and early 20th century, is based on an idea of this sort of restful, peaceful uh, you know, time that really you had to be affluent <laughs> and have leisure time to do mm-hmm. these things, okay, to sit there and just contemplate African-Americans and other people, probably lower-class people, are working the land. And mm-hmm. the land is, they don't have a romantic notion of the land because it's just hard. But I, um, I would, um, that's true to agree, but I do want to point out that many people in the 19th century like John Burroughs or John Muir, definitely as young people worked hard in the land. Uh, and it's not just a middle-class movement or an urban movement. As In many books, it, they tend to kind of emphasize that. I think um, there is a, what's going on with African-Americans tends to be more that Southerners do not look at the land in this way. Uh, the Southern attitude towards landscape has been much more utilitarian, exploitative even, um, going back to the uh, the slave system and a slave plantation. So certainly they they know land through labor, but you could say that every farmer, everybody who grows up um, in, in, in a rural area loves nature. They love to go hunting and fishing and to be outside and enjoy the wind and the rain and the cool temperatures or whatever. There's no reason not to think that they're not enjoying nature and enjoying the beauty of the mountains, perhaps, uh, as well. Um, but they don't have the same sort of theological or, or ideological framework for it that you have in these um, – amongst the Congregationalists and Presbyterians and, and various other people uh, outside of the South. So part of, part of it is that. What is, I think, made the African-Americans different from your other Southerners is that they have a communal experience that's unlike white Southerners. White Southerners are, like the Baptists, extremely individualistic. They don't like government. They don't like taxes. They are the environmental movement in the South is weaker than anywhere else, um, and for, for this reason. But African-Americans um, were a community both because the whites forced them to be one, and they were they lived in the slave quarters. So if you look at the New England, you've got these New England towns. The community is the New England town. The South has no towns or very few it's not an urban people. It's a very rural people. But the one place that you did have people in a community would be the slave quarters. So there is this tradition of blacks helping one another. And the, the one institution that um, is allowed by whites in slavery and that survives slavery to the modern day is the church. So it remains a kind of a center for the community and the black, uh, the Baptist preacher is a spokesman for the community and to a go-between between the black community and the white uh, white society. Uh, and so the church has this sort of 
on this other purpose as well. So that there is a community in the South and it seems mainly um, wrapped around the, the black church. You do not see, I can't find any example where whites who are also poor and maybe uh, in some sort of suffering from some environmental ill or other who organize in their churches in the same way. It's very much characteristic of the, of the African-American community in uh, the South and the North um, that you just don't see among Southern whites. Mark, uh, we're out of time. This is oh. a very interesting conversation. I'd like to continue. Uh, you have been very generous with your time. I really appreciate you My coming pleasure. on. Thank you very much for Thank you, Mark, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>